Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. We're delighted today to welcome Adam Havey on Common Health. Adam Havey is Executive Vice President of Business Operations at Emergent Biosolutions. He joined Emergent in 2003 and has served as Executive Vice President, Business Operations since April of 2017. Welcome, Adam. It's great to be here, Steve. Thank you for having me. For those who are not aware, Emergent Biosolutions is a multinational life sciences company. It's headquartered nearby in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and it produces a range of products that address public health threats, address the medical needs associated with public health threats, and that covers quite a broad range of nuclear, chemical, biological, radiological, and uh, a very integral part of the national stockpile, the strategic national stockpile, and other things. And as we'll say, and as we'll cover in this in this podcast, uh, they're also central to the production distribution of Narcan, and we'll get into that. So, Adam, thanks for making the time today. We're really delighted to have you, and thanks for joining the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. We're delighted at that, too. Let's get started with the end of the public health emergency. Um, you know, this the, it just happened May 11th, the end of more than a three-year period, really, and it's, we're now into the great unwinding. This involved over $4.6 trillion of investments in multiple sectors across American society, the economy, a whole host of institutions. As you look back on that and try to take account of where we are today, do you feel that we are emerging stronger in certain fundamental capacities? Yeah, I would say, Steve, you know, as we think about the the great unwinding, as you've kind of coined it, you know, I, I think that there were many successes as part of the response. I think the progress that we've made globally, especially in the United States around building capacity and response capabilities was a success during this kind of unprecedented time. But I think we could all admit that there's quite a bit of work that remains. Uh, I think, you know, as, as we've been part of this public health kind of system within the United States and even more globally over the years, I think sustaining and building progress to ensure that we're appropriately prepared to address the next public health emergency will take some additional work by governments, by kind of a broad spectrum of stakeholders as well. And, and I'm sure we'll talk about this uh, throughout, but you know, it requires prioritization and adequate funding. And uh, that funding has to come pr- well before the next emergency. So it's a, it's a tricky trade-off when it comes to policy and, and action. And uh, excited to, to talk more about that. So uh, this need for long-term sustained and ample funding in building our capabilities for preparedness and response. We're not there yet, right? We're weak in that regard. Say a bit more about that. I think we've seen areas where in the in the maybe the biodefense space where we've made 
again, progress. I think some of the, the successes I alluded to earlier with some of the technology and the rapid deployment of vaccines and therapeutics during COVID was, was a, I think, a somewhat of a measure of some of our capabilities. But these longer term sustainable partnerships between industry and government have, have some room to grow and improve. And I think it's going to require more transparency, some certainty and changes in how we communicate to really kind of foster, uh, again, preparing for the future. And, and I think there's some barriers that still exist um, between industry and governments to allow for industry to be more ready. And uh, in, an, in the situation of a pandemic, we, we have to be able to respond incredibly fast. And learning to do that together is going to be a, a skill that we have to develop. You know, we do face some daunting challenges right now, right? We've got deep political divisions. A lot of attention has turned away from the pandemic. It's become politically charged, a bit toxic in that regard. How do we move forward? We also have a deflation of our own leadership within our government around science and public health with the departure of iconic personalities like Francis Collins and Tony Fauci. But now we have, you know, Rochelle Walensky leaving end of June. We have some changeover at the White House, other other changes in position there. How do we, in your view, how do we keep these this imperative front and center stage about the need for investing long term with private sector partners in a transparent and, and accountable way? How do we make that case under these circumstances, in your view? Yeah. So I think there's a couple things. I think we think the good news is, Steve, I think we need to lead with some of the facts, which are, I think in many cases, public health preparedness and, and being more prepared is something that is kind of overwhelmingly bipartisan. I think there's been some recent polling done uh, by Bio and Healthcare Ready that says, you know, 95% of the respondents in that poll felt like the federal government should prepare for a wide variety of public health emergencies. I think over 90% agreed that the lessons learned from the last pandemic should be incorporated in our national preparedness efforts for the next emergency. I think 90% uh, of respondents also agreed that the federal government should expand long-term preventative measures to avoid um, some of these future pandemics. And you know, when you break it down to the politics, I think eight in 10 voters believe that it's very important or extremely important that the government take and prioritize action in this space. So, you know, I think the best thing for the politicians here is to to get behind some true action. And I guess for me, the the concern and maybe the opportunity is I think we've got to break this cycle of, you know, emergency and complacency. You and I spoke about that in, in the past. And I think we do that through educating folks on the cost of that complacency. And you mentioned the the four trillion that was invested or over four trillion. I think the the other side of that coin is I think it's been estimated that the economic damages and the monetized health and life loss was somewhere in the $16 trillion range. And, you know, we've got to educate folks that preparedness is is necessary and important um, from an investment perspective. And that if we were to take the right steps and meaningfully invest over time, that those dollars would give us pretty significant returns. You know, on the health gain expectation standpoint, I think we've seen some data and research that suggests that for every $1, we could have benefited like $1,700. And just from a pure economic perspective, those dollars really have strong returns when it comes to putting those countermeasures or those public health actions in place. 
Thank you. I want to shift a bit to uh, some of the experiences that Emergent Biosolutions had during the acute phase of this pandemic. I mean, you experienced firsthand in your operations in Baltimore at the Bayview plant the grave risks and the complicated challenges that emerge under very intense and urgent pressures to expand production of vaccines amid an unfolding pandemic, the risks of contamination. How, in the aftermath of that experience and the experience that other manufacturers had, how has that changed the thinking about scaling up production, preserving quality control, biosafety for future pandemics? Yeah. Well, again, it's been a it's been some hard lessons, Steve, but some good ones nonetheless. And maybe to set the stage, I think just give a little bit of background. Our experience, you know, in in the Bayview plant as well as with the government uh, came and started right after the 2009 H1N1 swine flu pandemic, where I think the government put in some good programs uh, and policy around expanding domestic capability. And one of those programs was the Center for Innovation in Advanced Manufacturing, or CIADM for short. We invested with the government kind of as a co-partner in this, our dollars, their dollars, to build you know, domestic capability to to create about 50 million dose equivalents of flu um, influenza vaccine on a regular basis. You know, I think in hindsight, the, the thing we've learned um, outside of the maybe the control point, which I'll get to, is the focus of that partnership on influenza, like the intent was good, but it was too narrow. So getting to my earlier point, I think we need to expand the, the aperture as we think about being prepared for, you know, new and, and emerging infectious diseases or pandemics. And I think as, as COVID emerged, I think, and we looked at that domestic supply, I think we need to con- you know, make sure we've got stronger domestic manufacturing capability. And to do that, you've got to kind of run the play or run, run in real time the operation. So when you go from manufacturing like we did in Bayview, either clinical material or smaller scale niche medical countermeasures to full scale commercial you know, sizes with two multinational uh, pharmaceutical companies under very, very tight time constraints. I think you, you take different risk calculus, but you also um, can be in a situation like we were to, to realize some of those risks. So I think there's some new eyes and ears and ideas around how we build those facilities, how we maintain those facilities. And I think there's two components to that, Steve, that need to change. One for us, one of the biggest challenges was the workforce. You know, hiring and training 300 plus employees to scale up rapidly that have deep technical knowledge um, on a process that hadn't been tested and have deep GMP and that scientific background, that was an extreme challenge for us, Um, as well as kind of activating the supply chains around the new technology, the the base platform that we were working on in Bayview, um, we hadn't worked with before and was kind of limited in its use in the industry. And I think that was... uh, that also complicated the science piece of the equation. So, you know, for us, I think the lessons learned have been more preparation up front, a different approach to hiring and training large groups of scalable uh, employees from a knowledge perspective, as well as making sure we're not overly focused on one technology platform at a time because we don't know where the next pandemic is going to come from. Yeah, I mean that was a that was a profound story. I know it's you know you were subject to quite a bit of investigation and discussion around the the scale of loss of doses 
over 500 million. I mean, the, that must have been a profound experience of trying to figure out how to never again experience something like that. How has the pandemic changed thinking about the best approach to balancing different demands for the strategic national stockpile? Yeah, well, I think it's safe to say that you know, we'll continue to face kind of a wide range of, of diverse threats on, ongoing. And I think it's going to be imperative for national security that we kind of continue to think about how we protect against both the known and unknown public health threats. I think, I think one of the challenges the SNS has or the strategic national stockpile has is prioritization. And do you put, uh, I think, biodefense type um, risks above, you know, naturally occurring and trying to balance that policy out, I think, is a, is a key component. And I think the CDC, um, as well as BARDA and the ASPR in particular, are all trying to solve for the growing needs of the SNS. And, it's, and it goes beyond just protective safety equipment or masks and some of the maybe the more commonly discussed infrastructure. I, I think it goes back, Steve, to my earlier answer and making sure we've got the right manufacturing infrastructure in the United States that can be there and be ready to perform when the next public health emergency or national security kind of event occurs. Let's talk a bit about Narcan, the drug that's used to reverse opi opioid overdoses in spray form. It's, you've now gotten permission to move to over-the-counter sale. I want you to explain a little bit about how did we get to this point? What is it that led the authorities to approve over-the-counter use of Narcan? You know, what is it about this moment in time, the sense of urgency, the nature of the synthetic opioid epidemic? Tell us a bit about that, and then let's talk about what this will mean in practice. Obviously, we're very pleased and excited um, to be working with the FDA and the approval of, of Narcan over-the-counter as an emergency treatment, I, we, we think is the right next step. And, you know, Steve, all along, we've talked about affordability of, you know, access and availability and awareness as kind of those these A's of importance relative to you know, trying to stem the tide of the of the opioid crisis. And we think OTC really pushes the ability for access um, more broad. And I think the FDA, as, the, as they evaluated it, I think the safety profile of the, pro, of the product, Narcan, is strong. And I think everybody felt like the, the right thing to do is to try to get this in as many hands as possible. I mean, as you're aware, there's a stigma out there around this crisis that creates uh, some challenges. And we think going over the counter with Narcan maybe breaks down some of those barriers. Also, I mean, just the, the increased urgency around the crisis, right? Every eight minutes in the United States, a person is dying from an opioid overdose. And unfortunately, the research shows that the epidemic is escalating in the U.S. with the rise of the synthetic opioids. And, you know, the landscape has really changed over the time frame. And we think, again, access to naloxone is critically important. And the availability of naloxone is only kind of a small part of the larger comprehensive strategy that's needed to address the epidemic in the country. Yeah, I've just in the the discussions of this, I've been struck by the fact that we hit 108,000 deaths from overdose in 2022, an estimated 1 to 2 million people who went to the emergency room with overdose experiences and it looks like with the spread of fentanyl into the drug supply streams, and it's not just a single stream, it's multiple strings of drugs that now are contaminated with or mixed with fentanyl, that the threat has broadened in, in, in the scope. You're getting kids that are first-time users of some drug who were completely unaware and 
uh, are experiencing this. So as a social phenomenon, opioid use remains highly stigmatized. People are uncomfortable with that. If if this goes for sale over the counter in drugstores around the country, a lot of the owners are going to be worried that drug users will come in and steal the steal the product or they don't want them in their stores. But this is also something that is trying to create a measure of protection that people have with them in their car or their bag or their medicine cabinet at home. That's a big change. Do you think that that in the end of the day that this change of policy is going to lower overdose deaths? Well, you know, Steve, I think we we obviously believe that naloxone is a key piece of that puzzle to help lowering the deaths, but it's not a silver bullet, obviously. And I think that allowing Narcan to be sold on pharmacy shelves and through these online retailers, we believe should um, address some of this broadening. I think it meets the crisis where it is, if you will. So we we do think it's going to it's going to have a positive impact. So some of the issues that are being thought over now, worked over now as we approach the the advent of over-the-counter sales are what price, what form of insurance coverage, will kids be able to use this? Say a bit about those issues. Certainly, certainly. Well, I I think we just recently kind of made public what what our plan is for price. So the out-of-pocket retailer price for for Narcan OTC will be less than $50 for a carton of two four milligram doses. So we're, we've been trying, we've been working really hard since the beginning of this. We hadn't raised the retail price of this, Steve, and since we acquired this product from Adapt. So we've been, you know, we know how important price sensitivity is and we've been trying to, to drive that down. So we hope that the $50 price is good value, but I think one of the key components of that will be, you know, we know that state Medicare programs offer some degree of coverage for OTC products. Um, and that access to OTC naloxone for Medicaid patients will depend on that coverage. And then for those who are more commercially ins- insured or enrolled in Medicaid Advantage plans, it'll be important for those commercial insurers and Medicare Advantage to really consider thoughtfully how they're going to make sure naloxone can remain accessible for those who need it. Because Medicare does not allow for that coverage of OTC products. Although during COVID, we, we know that if it's COVID tests or other things through Medicare Part B, that's that's a possibility. So I think it's going to be really important um, that we work together with local governments, with state governments, and with federal governments around how we make sure naloxone over-the-counter and otherwise is readily available for folks to uh, expand and gain access. Say a bit about the entry of xylazine, the the sedative used in treating animals, large animals, cattle and horses by vet veterinarians and wi- those who handle wildlife as well, this is a non-opioid, right? It's yes, a, it is. That's correct. And it, and and it's entering the the drug streams, and it has this other dangerous impact of sedating people while they're experiencing an overdose. Uh, Rahul Gupta, the head of the White House Office on National Drug Control Policy, was just recently here. And I must say, there was the sense of alarm around what that phenomenon was pretty palpable. And we don't have an antidote drug for this either. Say a bit about how do we manage that situation? Yeah, it's a very challenging and concerning development. You know, I think you're hitting on kind of what I was alluding to earlier. I think the stigma in this 
illicit drug use space or as folks are challenged with some of these disorders, I think we can attack it there. You know, again, our programs don't address the xylene threat specifically, but I think uh, education and awareness and a bit more uh, maybe empathy around the stigmatization of people being kind of weak if they're in these situations and making sure that we've got programs that come all up alongside them, including naloxone, including healthcare facilities that can then work with folks around substance use disorder, including their families and how we kind of link arms together to work through the stigma, the solution. You know, again, Narcan's a piece, education is a piece, better healthcare is a piece of that equation to really meet the needs. But it's a uh, it's a big challenge that we're going to have to continue to wrestle with, both as a, a provider of one part of the solution, as well as a country. You know, a few years ago, when Naloxone was be first becoming available for use by police and firefighters, there was a lot of hope that that was going to have some significant impact. And it has had some significant impact, but it's also brought forward the kind of ambivalence that many firefighters and police felt about administering this drug, this antidote, repeatedly to addicted populations. And we're going to have, I would expect we're going to continue to see ambivalence uh, in different populations, although I also think it's quite likely that this tool, which is such a such a valuable tool in dealing with really urgent crisis situation, that it's going to become normalized over time, and we're going to, it's going to become a more standard item that you see in schools, at home, in the medicine cabinet you have at work. What's your thought? Yeah, I, I think we agree with you, Steve. I, I, one, I do think that as you mentioned previously with the xylene question and even even the synthetic opioids getting into other, if it's vape or other <laughs> delivery systems that are impacting unknowing folks in, in, a, in a way that kind of was unpredicted. But I think it is our hope that naloxone becomes the standard item in homes and schools and the workplace. And again, that's the maybe the action side of it. But you know, to your point, I think more education around what the real risks are. And I think as those stories get told where, you know, and, and many of us have loved ones or folks close to us that were impacted by it, I think maybe our mindsets may change as a people with respect to how we address and, and try and kind of look at this, again, to your words, more normal or look Narcan nasal spray as the fire extinguisher or the AED type product that unfortunately we've got a situation in the country where we've got to have those types of products on our person to be able to deliver immediately. And, you know, making sure that that's available and I think is critical to making sure we're actively kind of fighting this epidemic at the front lines. Thank you. I want to come back to the pandemic preparedness issues. The key legislation, the Pandemic All Hazards Preparedness Act, PAPA, which dates back to 2006, it's coming up for reauthorization this year. Uh, the current authorization runs through the end of September. This is a very important event, a very important event in Congress, and it's one that we're putting a big focus uh, now uh, in the alliance. Tell me, what is Emergent Biosolutions pressing for in terms of R&D, warm manufacturing, supply chains, governance mechanisms? That's a, quite an array here, but give us a quick overview of the top line points on what you're looking for and hoping for in that reauthorization. Well, first, Steve, I just kind of, as, as you think about what the work, good work you guys do, I, I just want to thank you because I think 
you're nailing a, a really important point. I think it's critical that the U.S. government kind of sets policy on this and and continues to move this forward. I think we're looking for a few important adjustments. You know, one of them I mentioned right out of the gate was sustained funding, right? That clarity and sustainability. It can't be, you know, a kind of emergency to complacency. We, we need to break that cycle. And we think that PAPA can help do that. I think emergence history has shown even pre-BioShield, pre-BARDA, if you can create um, some gravity around these things, you really can make progress. And I think some of BARDA's successes and some of emergence successes in the past really speak to that. So making sure that we've got good funding, maintaining the the capability, uh, meaning manufacturing capacity, the supply chains, the people pieces of that that we talked about earlier, I think all are tied to that key sustained funding component of that. I think the other kind of important piece is for Congress to establish a mechanism for industries to partner differently um, with the FEMC. I think soliciting and getting, again, to the transparency point, industry partner views in real time, as opposed to just when the crisis kind of happens or starts to emerge, um, I think would really strengthen the public-private partnership. And I think identify some gaps you know, prospectively where, where we can put things in place to mitigate those. I think we've also talked about the workforce development and creating ways either through university or through even some trade programs or technical programs where we can have a cadre of folks in the workforce that can flex into the technology and into the science could make a huge difference. And I also think there's an opportunity, Steve, to to kind of globalize this. I think there's, you know, work in Europe with Hera and other organizations where having a U.S. response is critical, but also having an eye towards a global response and the global connectivity is also a key component to this. Again, I know that goes outside PAPA, but when we think about COVID and, and how we need to respond in the future, it's PAPA plus, if you will. I'm glad you raised that. Um, we'll be doing uh, an event. We'll be notifying you about it and all the other members of the alliance on the 21st of June jointly with the EU. That will feature the EU directorate and the representative of HERA and, and BARDA. Looking at the whole question of transatlantic, the transatlantic alliance and the role it plays in trying to advance higher levels of cooperation in, in health security. So I'm glad you brought that up. Do, what are the prospects, do you think, for a bipartisan passage by October 1st? I mean, Papa's been a very powerful symbol of what is possible on a bipartisan basis over almost two decades. Current environment's pretty tough, but what's the best strategy for success here? Well, I think we can all acknowledge the, the challenges of the current uh, environment. I think you you nailed it. We we feel like that the bipartisan history of it and some of the stats we shared earlier. I think hopefully will drive both the House and the Senate to to take it up as a priority. I think the good news what we've seen at this point is both the House and the Senate have started their process regarding Papa. You know, requesting input from stakeholders via RFIs and earlier this spring, as well as you know having their first hearings on the reauthorization. So we we think. Uh, some additional engagement with members and staff across the House and Senate will be a critical point to driving this forward. And we think the prospects are good. Again, the, the past and the strength of this, meaning the bipartisan strength behind these types of initiatives, has been the key in the past. And I think it'll win the day this year. It, it may come down to some late negotiations and last minute discussions, given some of the other, other larger looming priorities. But we think it gets done this year. And you know, we're, we're going to be doing everything we can to, to support members and, and get information out there about the importance of it. Thank you, Adam. 
Let's talk about monkeypox now referred to as mpox. We're at a one-year point, really, where we had this most recent cycle of outbreaks and uh, changes in a U.S. policy approaches. You, you were part of that mobilization. What are your reflections one, looking one year out at what happened uh, starting last spring, a year ago last spring? Yeah, in many ways, I, I think similar, you know, to my opening statement about some of the successes. I, I think, I think MPOX, you know, the cases have declined since August, since the peak in August. And I think WHO has said that last week that the disease was no longer an international public emergency. So that's the good news. I think part of the success of MPOX response was due to this, this kind of gets back to that dollar of preparation can have pretty important impacts when the event occurs. But in some ways, we were fortunate that the SNS had an orthopox vaccine and, and therapeutics that could be quickly deployed to communities that needed them most. There wasn't a wait time for development and testing and manufacturing. So I think it's a, a case study is of when we have the, the requirements or the right countermeasures available, things can be done with very little resonance time and with a lot of effectiveness. And I think it was it was good to see the infrastructure and community organizations work together to educate, outreach, and and put things in motion. I think that uh, you know the the hard part is how broad to go, and when you think about the SNS and policy going forward, how do we get the right balance of emerging threats, maybe some of the known unknowns that we need to be more prepared for in the future. Do you think with something like MPOX that continued White House oversight and leadership is needed, or can this be managed by going back to the key agencies that are responsible? Yeah, I think at this point it could go back to the key agencies. I mean, you mentioned earlier, and I did not, the kind of oversight. I think oversight is, is important because when, when you get into these situations, again, before the emergency, having some connections there or some oversight I think is critical. And so it's, it, I think the Goldilocks approach, but I think as, as this is where it is today, I think it can move out of White House oversight and, and back to the owning agencies. Let's talk about the Biodefense Posture Review. This is something that was commissioned months ago by Secretary Austin. It's going to be released uh, June 20th. We'll be doing a public release event at CSIS. So you'll hear about that, Adam, soon, shortly. You, of course, uh, Bioemergent, I mean, Emergent Biosolutions uh, has a strong relationship with DOD. What are you expecting and hoping will come out of this uh, Biodefense Posture Review? I think we really hope it addresses the, the biological threat comprehensively and really will give confidence that the DOD is taking that threat kind of into account when addressing the warfighter and national protection. I, I think it's, uh, I think the past, it, that's the hardest piece. And I think it's the most complex piece when we talk about U.S. and domestic capability. When you think about some of the chemical and some of the other threats, a little bit easier to address and small molecules, well-established U.S. infrastructure but for these niche biological components, it's, it's something that I think we need to prioritize higher and fund different and looking for the DOD and, and this to maybe show some of that more comprehensively. So you think there will be strategically some shifts, but also a demand for higher kind of coherence and accountability and integration of effort? I mean, the, one of the problems DOD has faced is the fragmentation of effort across this vast enterprise. That's right. I think that's well said. Yeah, I... I mean, I think when we think about it comprehensively, it's the strategic priorities and, and where is the kind of the top areas that we need to work together with DOD and invest in. I think there's, there's some good infrastructure in place that could really move this forward. Um, similar to, I think, how BARDA has addressed some of their high threat category A components. 
I think if the DOD could be clearer about that and stay committed to working those problems, I think we could make some real progress. Let's close with a discussion around antimicrobial resistance AMR. I, I referenced earlier that we'll be doing something on the 21st of June with the Europeans and focused on the uh, transatlantic alliance. It's really, we're going to have the central focus be on AMR. And this is something that the world's turning its attention back to more seriously, but there's still uh, some really tough questions outstanding as to whether we're going to see any real results in terms of trying to overcome the, the gap in the market in terms of producing new antibiotics. What, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? What should we be doing differently as we look forward? I think, I mean, just to kind of reemphasize, I think it's great that there's global attention on antimicrobial resistance. We think it's a, an important increase, increasing threat, obviously, both naturally occurring as a challenge in, in healthcare, as well as when you think about it from a, a biodefense perspective. I think, unfortunately, we've seen modest improvements as you know, you know, in the early days of Emergent, we worked on this as well as other companies. And I think it's, you know, we've got to fix this, I think, major market failure that once products launch with uh, either different or unique mechanism, mechanisms of action, the investment profile and how we're either incentivizing or pulling these products forward doesn't seem to be working. It's just very, very challenging. And we know also that I think Congress is looking at this closely. I think we need to take, a, you know, a different approach. And, and I think it starts with creating kind of different market incentives or different structures to kind of spur innovation, as well as tying it maybe more closely to national security and, and some other factors, because I, I think it's a critical component of being prepared both globally and, and locally from, for, from a public health perspective. Thank you. We're doing this exercise in June with precisely the head in mind, taking a hard look, pausing, taking a hard look at what works and what's not working and what needs to change in the approaches if we're going to get better results. You are supporting some very interesting exercises that foreign policy undertook. At the Munich Security Conference, which I attended back in February, there was an exercise. There was one in here in Washington, two different groups over two different days, in which I joined and quite enjoyed. Tell us, I know you're still in the process now of trying to understand what came out of those exercises and how to pull those lessons together in some published form. But tell us a bit now, like, what are they revealing to you and what's the value in this sort of investment? Yeah, so I think for us, it's helping some of these global leaders really think about future bio-based public health threats. You know, again, it's the awareness side of the, the coin. And I think in, in some of the comments around PAPA and others, I think we're trying to make sure folks understand if we're going to battle bio threats, how can we be more prepared. And I think the foreign policy team is aiming to publish an overview of the findings at the end of this month. So, so stay tuned. You know, for us, I think it confirmed, I think some of the, the lessons learned through COVID, but I think there was also some, some new, new insights that again, stay tuned, foreign policy will be sharing it. We'll, we'll be excited to, to talk about kind of the implications of some of those findings as we go forward. Do you expect to carry on in this fashion in year two, year three? I, yeah, I, yeah, we do. Yes. That's great. That's great. Okay, we, we ask all of our guests to close by answering question of what gives you the greatest hope and optimism? Yeah, well, like, like I started, Steve, I think we learned, I think there was many successes through the most recent pandemic, and, I, and I'm excited about some of the advances in technology, um, as well as some of the systems. 
Um, I'm optimistic about uh, PAPA reauthorization and what the community, collective community of stakeholders can do to bring forward new technologies and and stabilize if it's global health preparedness and, and security. So Emergence, a, a company that's kind of growing quickly and learning quickly and, and will be there to, to support that community and very excited to be part of that and you know committed to working this, uh, not just over the near term, but definitely over the long term. So I think the the future will will bring some innovation, some new ways of working that will make and ensure we're we're better prepared. Thanks so much, Adam. Thanks for all you do, and thanks for thanks for joining us today. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security, or listen to other CSIS podcasts please visit csis.org.